0: They attached their antennas to the weather balloons, so that way they could the, the antenna could ascend so that you could get a really, really good reach across Sydney, and they reached quite a lot of the inner suburbs of Sydney, which was really impressive technically, but if they were ever caught or they um, were in a dangerous situation, they could cut the weather balloon loose and get away. Welcome to Radio
1: Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Jennifer Waits.
2: Hi, I'm Paul rees Mandel. And I'm Erica Klein.
1: So radio history is close to our hearts at Radio Survivor, and I have a particular interest in tales about college radio's past. It's always a treat to learn more about radio outside of the United States, where we are based. So it's with great pleasure that we welcome our guest today, Rafael Alumeri, who is writing a history of student radio in Australia. Thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor. Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm so excited. So as you know, I'm very steeped in college radio history in the United States, but I'm not as well versed about the early years of student radio around the world. So maybe if you can just start and tell us how old radio is in Australia, how old student radio is in Australia.
0: Awesome. So you're getting one of our uh, scoop. Um, That's a little bit of an exclusive in my book, because as you I'm sure you're aware, no one's ever written a history of student radio in Australia before. Um, They've never written either uh, not just a book or a They haven't written a chapter of a book or a thesis or any kind of substantial research into it. Um, This information I'm about to give you is pretty new. Um, The history of student radio in Australia actually dates back to the 1930s, um, which is much earlier than anyone would predict. Um, the, The main successful stories that we hear about are from the 70s, mainly because the baby boomers that were part of them obviously are still alive today and they're talking about it. Um, but many people don't know that students at the University of Sydney um, in the 1930s actually tried to get a student radio station going um, before any before uh, anybody else in Australia did. Uh, universities in Australia were aware of college radio at the United States, um, but we had no culture um, for student radio here and very little radio culture as well. Um, students at the University of Sydney um, got together and they did uh, what I call uh, Radio for students, of students, by students, which is like uh, very eerily similar to the experiments of the nineteen seventies as well. So predates it by several decades. They applied to the university, which they had to do at the time. The university said that they doubted the students could run so much as a PA system, let alone a radio station, um, and it was stopped in its tracks. Uh, this what, r- incredibly enthusiastic! What kind of what kind of radio yep. station were they trying to start? You know, because I'm the nineteen
1: thirties. That is really early and and just to give like a little bit of us student radio history in the 1920s like in the very early days of radio there were some students starting up these AM radio stations in the 1920s but by the 19, early 1930s there weren't really that many student radio stations until later in the 30s when students started creating these campus only carrier current stations. So I'm super curious about, you know, the 1930s where it was sort of this weird time for college radio. What type of technology were they hoping to use on campus?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to check the exact details for you right now. Um, But they weren't wanting to broadcast, so they required a license. Um, I believe what they were after was a very, very low power license just to cover the campus. Um, But the actual content was going to be produced um, in a very, very similar way to the way college radio stations run now, um, which is by students, by student clubs, student news, um, uh, student theatre, um, everything student. Um, and it was uh, just an absolutely incredibly ambitious project. As you mentioned, um, it was very rare to have that kind of thing at the time, especially in Australia. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, if these students had been allowed to continue their goals and had not been obstructed by these really unimaginative admin um, The face of Australian media, probably honestly, like I could even be really dramatic and say the face of media in general may be completely different. Um, We may have had so many changes much earlier. um, If we had, if the things that we're trying to achieve now in terms of media diversity in Australia, maybe we would have achieved them 20 years ago. So we could have, we could be working on something else now. Um, So it's just really disappointing that that progress was stalled, um, just purely because some old people thought, nah, they can't do it. It's, a,
1: it's such a common sad story. And, and, you know, you were mentioning about sort of the context of radio in Australia at the time. Maybe talk about that so we can understand what, you know, what were these students seeing on the radio? Uh, obviously, they were seeing that there, there was something missing that they wanted to have on the radio,
0: Absolutely. So let me clarify those dates. I apologize. So the the University of Sydney student radio experiments do date back to the 1930s. um, But they actually started on commercial radio. So they were given um, slots on commercial radio. um, And uh, they did so every year for various festivals and stuff like that. Um, They got a taste for it. Um, It became very successful. um, And they received a lot of great reviews. And that led up to the attempt that I described in 1946. Um, which was thus thwarted by the admin.
1: That's super interesting because in the United States, we have similar stories about commercial radio stations offering airtime to some of these early stations. And, you know, I know a lot about history at the college that I attended as an undergraduate, Haverford College, where students started a station in the 1920s, and then they ended up selling the license to a commercial entity. And, And after that, that entity offered... To allow students from Haverford to go on the air of the commercial station for you know an allotted amount of time every week, so uh, that's that's really interesting. That that's sort of the first moments that you see students on the air in Australia too through that absolutely, kind of way. and
0: that and and that continues um, for quite a long time um, at, right through to the 60s, um, and that's how a lot of the the biggest uh, student radio stations um, in Australia got started in the early 70s. Um, they got a taste for it. Um, but the, the running of the commercial shows, the slots, half hour, one hour, very minimal time, um, very little resources given. It was really, uh, what they, the commercial stations called a community service. It wasn't really considered like, uh, beneficial as content. It was really just like a, we're doing you a favor kind of thing, but they didn't embrace the value of students as providing fresh content, fresh perspectives, new ideas.
1: Yeah. Do you know how that came about? And. What was in it for those commercial stations? Like, what sparked that idea for them to have student broadcasters on the air?
0: Um, I don't know, actually. Um, unfortunately, because this uh, because these experiments were so buried, all the information I've just given you, the reason it's news is because it's, it's very difficult to get to this stuff. Um, I've been to every single state and territory library in my country, Um, And I have spent the last two years flipping through newspapers because they're not digitized. So I've been physically looking through newspapers to find this stuff. So um, I've been able to find a lot of stuff uh, looking through student newspapers. So that's been my my, my main target. Um, But your question um, is outside the realm of those papers, if that makes sense. Um, So um, hopefully I can find the answer one day. um, But it's um, I I don't know just yet.
1: Yeah, I feel your pain. It is so... Every time I visit a college radio station, I'm curious about the history. And sometimes I find myself digging through the archives the way you describe. And, and in a few rare cases, there are universities that have digitized their student newspapers, which is such a boon for college radio historians to be able to do that research without... And having to so much more
0: in America um, it's really great to see so many papers in America be digitized It's so helpful and there's so much stuff that can be found this book uh, this book is a perfect example of that um, and I'm hoping that my book will encourage a lot of the universities who've stalled on that in Australia to um, get off their asses and um, just go off and digitize them they can afford it it's a great thing for them to do it's great publicity for that university so I'm hoping that um, yeah that'll draw some attention to the availability of this information so Rafael you were talking
1: about there was this attempt in the thirties to start the student radio station, which didn't happen, um, at the time. And then they weren't on the air until the 1940s. So maybe take, continue the story for us about what happens from this point going forward with student radio in Australia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the turning point, um, so basically, uh, things sort of continued, um, very anticlimatically everything was like pretty small time um the first station and i'll say this with the acknowledgement that i have not finished my research yet so this may change who knows but um, it seems um quite clear at the moment due to my uh, according to my research that the first student radio station in australia was in melbourne at rmit university or rmit college as it was back then um it's called uh, studio two um, and it was overwhelmingly run by these tech nerds who just love the tech of the radio and they they broadcast because they love to build radio stations. And since they went to the effort of building a transmitter, they thought we may as well transmit. Um, And they've been doing that for quite a long time.
1: Yeah, that's a common story in in my research in the United States too, that some of these stations were really tech, especially if you think about the 1920s and the 1930s, 1940s, a lot of very techy students starting radio stations.
0: Well, um, it's interesting because it really leads into the turning point, um, the the crux of your question which is um when did it start kicking off for students to actually do the content and do the broadcasting themselves Um, that was with some pirate radio experiments that occurred in 1971 and 1972 um, and that was uh the vietnam draft resistors radio um the radio actually wasn't the goal in itself it was part of a protest it was really more of like a publicity stunt um so the fact that it became so influential was kind of an accident um but the reason it came to being is because these Tech nerds um, who are mainly interested in like amateur radio and building radios um, were also draft resistors. They were, uh, in Australia, the draft was if you were 18 to 20 years old, your name was picked out of a ballot. Um, and uh, if, if you were chosen, uh, your birth date was drawn out of the ballot, you would be sent um, uh, to the front in Vietnam. Um, and obviously, this was just as controversial Australia as it was in America. Um, and there was a significant amount of resistance to the draft um, and resisting the draft became the way that uh, students in Australia and their supporters resisted the Vietnam war in general. So a lot of these young kids who were interested in radio, who had nothing really to do with politics, got dragged into politics because they were drafted. Um, in particular, a young man named Chris holiday, who was a radio tech um, and his uh friend dan van alkem they were the radio techs behind 3dr draft resistance radio uh, the most notorious pirate radio station in australian history probably the standout one Um, there were a few other like small ones you know throughout history in recent years and stuff like that this is the only one that really stood out Uh, i know america has a huge history of pirate radio uh, but australia really doesn't Um, this was the the big one Um, so what happened was uh draft resistors uh need to do something. Um, Early 1970s, um, the war was wrapping up. Australia had already announced that they were going to withdraw troops from Vietnam. Um, The interest in the war had kind of died out. But the, the outrage was still there. Um, there was an obvious need to withdraw uh, as soon as possible and stop the damage to Vietnam and their civilians um, and the enormous number of casualties. Um, so draft resistance was the big thing at the time. Um, that's how that's the most effective way they found to resist the war. So uh, they planned a number of stunts with draft resistors um, who were public, um, publicly underground, if that makes sense. Um, so they publicly said... I'm illegally not enlisting for the draft. Come and get me. Um, And they lived underground, um, uh, hiding from police with warrants out for their arrest. Um, They would go on TV and pull public stunts and say, look, I'm still free. You can resist the draft and not go to jail. Um, and, And in addition to that, encouraging other people to resist the draft, they brought attention to the cause as well, that newspapers were largely ignoring. So, uh, in view of that, for that reason, they decided to do another publicity stunt in September 1971. So they planned a a, a sanctuary, a draft sanctuary at the University of Melbourne Union House. So uh, the idea was that they would get these four very public, notorious uh, draft resistors who were on the news frequently um, into Union House, and they would get a whole bunch of students and their supporters to protect the the draft resistors and the union house itself. Basically they wanted to show that, uh, you could publicly resist the draft and not get caught. Um, alternatively, some people thought the exact opposite. Some people actually thought we were going to get arrested. And by getting arrested, um, I would bring attention to the cause. People will be outraged at these young men are in jail. Just for following their moral beliefs um, and in that way resist, uh, resist the war. So, all these conflicting ideas, but it all came together. They rocked up uh, at Union House. Um, nothing happened for a few days. Um, they sat in Union House while normal university activities were going on, people walking around, like eating chips, uh, with like hundreds of their supporters in and out, you know, listening to music. And the purpose of the draft radio station, sorry. The draft resistance radio station was purely to add this extra publicity push for the press because they thought the press weren't interested. uh, That maybe they won't even show up. They did show up, um, but they thought maybe they wouldn't. So we want to make sure that they rock up. So we're going to do this really controversial thing that no one's ever really done before. We're going to start a pirate radio station, um, and they had the techs available to do that, uh, and they had the draft resistance and their supporters being on air and they broadcast um, protest songs. They broadcast John Lennon, um, uh, broadcast um, uh, Bob Dylan, um, you know, Janis Joplin, songs of the time. Like I said, nothing happened for a few days. They were getting ready to leave and then all hell broke loose. Around 4 or 5 a.m., the third day of the siege, 100 to 200 Commonwealth police officers, uh, that's federal police officers, Stormed the building, smashed down windows, broke down doors, uh, caused mass chaos, uh, tore apart the library, trying to find the the radio station whoa um, that 's crazy <laughs> uh, it was It was broken glass everywhere um, wow. press the press were all aware of what, what was going on, and um, the protesters also got a tip off because they had um, people um, patrolling the area. Um, so they mobilized immediately. They got the draft resistors, um, well hidden. Two of them had left the building because they said they didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket just in case they didn't get arrested. So two of them were secreted out the previous night and two of them hid behind a false wall in, uh, one of the rooms in the union building. Um, they crashed there for several hours while this, like, siege was going on. Um, the, uh, the, the protesters got in a bit of trouble with the amateur radio club because the police ended up going into the amateur radio club room, which had nothing to do with the protest. It was completely separate. And they tore the thing apart because they were trying to find the radio station. Um, oh, they did not so, capture.
1: so they were not. So the amateur radio club was not involved
0: in the pirate broadcast. They were just sort of adjacent <clears throat> to it. The amateur club, the official club, like student club at the university was not part of it, but individual people who happened to also be part of the club were part of it.
3: And what was was on the air of the pirate radio station during the raid, during this Vietnam draft resistance raid in Australia uh, that was taking place at this pirate station?
0: During the raid, what they did was uh, there was nothing on. Because it had been built to be as small as possible so it could be portable. So they actually packed it in. They, uh, the, the memories vary from either a milk carton or a, a case of beer. People can't remember. It was one or the other. Um, they packed away this transmitter inside this box. They secreted it away. Um, they think that possibly the police did get the antenna, which was on the roof, but that was disposable—or um, not disposable—but it could be replaced. They didn't actually capture the, sta- the actual radio transmitter itself. Uh, not only did they not—not not only did they fail to capture the radio station, they failed to capture a single draft resistor. Uh, they got one person on some trumped-up charges. That's a, like a bit of a controversy. That's a whole other thing. But essentially, they got away with nothing, and they had this quite a lot of egg on their face. Um, It was a huge win for the movement. Um, The police looked really, really bad. Uh, They uh, received criticism not only from the obviously progressive people who supported the protesters, but also from conservatives. Um, The president of the Liberal Club, um, I know that uh, sounds strange, but in Australia, Liberal is... uh, usually a right-wing person. Um, the the president of the Liberal Club at Melbourne University criticized the Commonwealth Police. The vice-chancellor of the university criticized the police. The administration of the university criticized them. Um, it was just like this fantastic moment um, where they achieved exactly what they wanted and quite a lot more. Um, because the, the protest was so successful, they decided to continue the pirate radio station.
1: I'm curious when... So when all these people came in for this raid, were they what were they uh, what were they looking for? Were they most upset about the pirate broadcast or about the people who are against the draft or all of the above?
0: All of the above, that's a really interesting thing because the pirate radio station, like I said, it was really more of a publicity thing, Um, but perhaps that's, that is exactly the way that the Commonwealth police saw it. Um, They saw it as a publicity thing and they didn't want the bad publicity um, of, uh, you know, doing a pirate radio station comparatively seems like not as serious as resisting the draft, but actually carried a five-year jail term. It's actually more serious technically um, because uh, resisting the draft uh, carried a two-year jail term. Um, so, so they really wanted to get the pirate uh, radio. They actually claimed that they did capture it. Um, they actually captured a few different things that had nothing to do with the pirate radio station. They captured um, what they called um, a Stetno uh, machine, um, which was uh, sorry, a Stetna machine, which was like a bit like an old fashioned photocopier, basically, that they used to print pamphlets. Um, They said, look, look, we got the radio station, and they didn't. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they really, really, really wanted to seem like they were in control. Um, There's a lot of speculation about their motivations in pursuing this raid, which ultimately was not a great idea, Um, but they failed.
1: Was, Was there any other history of raids on pirate radio stations before that time?
0: No, because, like I mentioned, there just wasn't really any other pirate station that was, like, notable enough to to have anything like that happen there were pirate radio stations uh by students but they were mainly like as pranks um so i'm not sure what the equivalent is in america but we have um goes by a few different names here but it's a what used to be called Prosh, Prosh Week. So it was just basically a big week of pranks by university students. Um, and that was particularly popular back in the varsity days, as I say, um, in the 60s and before then. Um, so they just um, they had a lot of things like they would go in and kidnap commercial radio presenters while they were on air. Um, like just as like a fun thing to do. Um, just a fun really Australian silly... prank. Kid- kidnapping. Yeah, just don't so, you know, <laughs> <Kidnapping>. casual. Anyway, <laughs> they only kidnapped him for a few hours. They brought him right back. Yeah, I don't.
1: I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure if I know of an equivalent tradition. I feel like when I look back at at vintage, it's sort of stu- like
2: pledge week. Maybe I mean I think it might yeah. be isolated to fraternities uh, in in the United States, and uh, who may, as part of their pledging a fraternity, may be required to pull out pull pranks and such. But not, I don't think there's anything on such a, a university wide basis that I that I know of. Not that I am steeped in in American university history.
0: <laughs> is it possible that, um because we're all radio nerds, like we were never cool enough to be part of that stuff? <laughs> That's and totally And it's all happening, but we just were never invited.
2: <laughs> very, well, well, I- very well is possible in my part. I'll totally cop to that.
0: Well, and also, <laughs> you know, I, I've dug
1: through a lot of old yearbooks and student newspapers, and and there are some very specific traditions that happen at certain colleges, certain campuses that are just – specific to that school like with specific slang and you know very specific traditions so it, it's possible that there are these prank traditions um but I I wasn't really aware of that at my college but yeah it doesn't mean it didn't happen historically or or even when I was there
0: <laughs> uh, um a pe- personal observation I always think it's like quite nice I think it's quite um poetic I guess that the radio people tended to be like kind of like uh, sorry, very inclined towards those prank weeks because student radio people have always been, like I say, misfits, um, will always have this like really weird sense of humor. <laughs> um, and I just think it like worked really well. Um, it was a pleasure to like write about those early pirate radio stations. But back to your question, um, they were all just like incredibly innocent. There were a few that were like stopped by police, but none of them required this raid. The reason the raid happened is because it was such a political absolutely openly political thing. Um, They were publicly opposing the government and the government's uh, laws. Um, They were publicly opposing the stance by the government and they're publicly saying, you know what, screw your draft, we're not going. Um, And they couldn't have that. Um, They were in a bit of a difficult place, as as some of the draft resistors point out. Um, The draft resistors are incredibly kind in my opinion to the commonwealth police who pursued them for so long um they say you know what uh, they really had no other choice if the parliament wasn't willing to change the law there was very little they could do they had to enforce that law kind of thing um, i don't know if i agree <laughs> um but but yeah they uh i think it's fair to say that maybe the commonwealth police did this i would say misguided raid because they felt like they had no other choice they had to do something and so then did this uh, did this
1: then plant the seed for future radio stations? What happened after they were shut down
0: in this very controversial raid? Absolutely, um, it's it's a very f- sort of scholarly question, um, you know, what leads to what. But it was absolutely a very influential moment. Um, a lot of things were happening at the time that also influenced what happened next, which was the creation of the community radio license. And that's when student radio in Australia really kicked off. So, uh, as a consequence of the 3DR pirate radio station, a few, let's say, um, related, uh, I would say cl- very, very closely related. I would say the like, children of this radio station, um, cause they were directly related to it. Uh, emerged there was 3pr the people's radio at monash university which had much more communist leanings whereas uh the 3dr draft resistance radio was much more what we call the new left of the 1970s if you're interested in that um so they rocked up uh they did a similar prank uh shouldn't say frank uh they did a similar stunt at the Mon- at monash university the following year and they broadcast at that sanctuary as well the police knew this time to stay away so nothing dramatic happened um but a lot of the 3dr people showed up as well to that um including some of the draft resistors another thing that they did was 2dr so the co- the call sign in the our neighboring state new south wales uh, where sydney is is the number two so they moved 3dr up to sydney and they broadcast pirate radio in sydney um in this really clever way um if you uh, have a tech background, this might be of interest to you. What they did to protect their station there was they got some weather balloons from some friends of theirs at the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, as one does, web- <laughs> as one does casually. That's what I said. Yeah, they were like, I, mean, yeah I love yeah, that. We got some, <laughs> um, and they attached their antennas to the weather balloons, so that way they could uh, uh, the, the antenna could ascend so that you could get a really, really good reach across Sydney, and they reached quite a lot of the inner suburbs of Sydney, which was really impressive technically, but if they were ever caught or they um, were in a dangerous situation, they could cut the weather balloon loose and get away, um, and that way the the police could not get the antenna or the, the station. That is amazing. Um, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but they just decided like 3DL went so well, uh, even though we didn't, it wasn't really the focus of our protest, it went so well that we need to continue using it because they believed in effective methods of protest. Um, so they took it up to uh, Sydney. Um, they got a good reach there, like I mentioned. Um, they actually ended up being mentioned in uh, New South Wales uh, State Parliament um, during that time. They were like, uh, one of the politicians of the uh, of the left-wing party was interviewed on the station. Um, and so they ended up um, in state parliament uh, records, official records still available. Why did this guy go on this pirate radio station? Um, so that was really impressive. Um, but what, But eventually what happened was um, this is a more of an indirect relationship. Um, there were other things that influenced um, the creation of community radio. But a bunch of people that were part of 3 d were like, you know what? As a consequence of the success of 3DR, we started, started talking about independent media. It was always on the on the ticket um, amongst other progressive issues of the time, women's rights, Vietnam War. But the experience of 3DR kind of brought it to the forefront. And they're like, why shouldn't we have our own press? Why shouldn't we have our own media? Um, they already had you know, their own leaflets and stuff like that, but they never really had anything to do with digital media. And they were like, but why not? Um, so a lot of the people that formed 3DR – Ended up working for what we call 3CR in 1974, which broadcast in 1975 at one of the first community radio stations in Australia. Um, a few different things went into the push for community radio. I absolutely believe 3 was one of them. Another one of them was the push for FM radio. Um, so uh, commercials in Australia were incredibly slow to pick up FM. So um, we actually didn't have it for quite a long time. Um, and a lot of people were like, we want an FM station so we can broadcast classical music because classical music needs stereo. So I should say that it was a push from various sectors um, in the media industry and in Australia, um, which led to the creation of the Community Radio License. Um, Officially went through in 1975 um, and essentially empowered people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get onto the air to get on the air. In particular, students, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, uh, people with specialist interests like classical music, jazz music – all over the country suddenly had the opportunity to broadcast on the air.
1: And how is that license different from the other existing licenses at the time? Why why was the community radio license special?
0: So the two existing forms of broadcasting were public, or um, I should say that's a controversial topic. So I should say uh, the government broadcasting, which was the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, very similar to the BBC, if you're uh, aware of that, Um, and commercial radio. Uh, The difference is um, who owns it. So obviously the government owns the ABC, uh, obviously commercials own the commercials and the community radio was owned by the community. So it was listener supported radio. There's a lot of songs. If you go on Spotify, if you search on YouTube, they're called listener supported radio. Um, Just about this exact topic. Um, It's this beautiful concept, which is uh, if your community radio station is valuable, it would be supported by the community. Um, So it's funded by Members. Uh, It's run by mostly volunteers, and most of the broadcasters are volunteers.
2: That sounds a lot like uh, community radio in the United States. And just to sort of uh, catch us up here, uh, we are talking with Rafal Alumeri, uh, who is authoring a book on the history of student radio, of college radio in Australia. And this is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of, of radio and sound, and and it's been quite a wild ride. So I kind of want to catch us up here, uh, just to make sure I'm understanding that how how um, this sort of sector of, of, of what we ostensibly call here in the United States uh, non-commercial radio came to be in Australia. And if I'm understanding correctly, Rafal, basically there was there was a lot of uh, pirate radio, unlicensed radio that sprang up in, in in the early 1970s in Australia, and it came up with the social movements, particularly uh, with. In, in opposition to the draft and Australia's participation in the Vietnam War, um, is really the first station, and then you had sort of a second station uh, that's inspired by it. That also, um, you know, saw that 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 not only was this sort of uh, inspired not only by the by the the politics specifically uh, anti-war, but seeing uh, a radio station that wasn't commercial. Or government run uh, could be of use to communities and and to social movements, um, which ultimately, uh, I guess, put enough pressure, it sounds like, on the Australian government and also gave, put the idea, I guess, out there more popularly in the mid 70s so that people could motivate and petition the Australian government to create an actual. Uh, community radio license, a category of radio license specifically set aside for community groups. Is that is that a pretty good gloss there of the history you've presented so far?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll probably talk about this perhaps a little bit later, but I just want to clarify that um, I don't want to imply that it was some, um, not necessarily a huge, you know, left wing triumph um, of community radio. The creation of the license, um, it certainly was. Uh, a significant part of it. Um, but there's some really interesting stuff about how the right-wing party in Australia actually supported um, the beginnings of community radio. Because uh, I don't want to imply that all community radio is radical or political. Um, that's not the case. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it was uh, the actual, just the fact of it existing was revolutionary in of itself.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that that you know, I think that, that it's not dissimilar to, to some things that we've seen in the United States. Um, you know, in the United States, there's been a, a non-commercial set aside since the 1940s, um, but we also have a newer class of non-commercial radio that began at the beginning of the 21st century that we call low-power FM, and it was definitely part of the motivation uh, to create it was due to uh, unlicensed pirate activity during especially uh, the 1990s here in the U.S., where communities were having difficulty getting onto the air and and uh, difficulty finding the ability to get especially a, an inexpensive, low-powered station on the air. Um, and so just went ahead and did it. And while, again, it, it's aligned, often considered to be aligned with a lot of progressive social movements, um, in practice, it's not necessarily – um a left wing or or politically progressive uh kind of media form and 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 even in, in the beginning there were there were many folks across the political spectrum who uh were in support of uh, the creation of this sort of license and of course there are stations of many many different types who now exploit but, it so uh, it's interesting these parallels uh here between Australia and the United States
0: absolutely and i will say that While the individuals or the content on the radio, on community radio, isn't necessarily political in itself, I believe that the act of any marginalized community broadcasting media is inherently political. Uh, I think the really interesting thing about um, what you just said about, let's say, the pirate radio stations you alluded to in the 1990s in America was that these people had this voice and they wanted to express it, but they couldn't. So they did it anyway. And the commonality between that and the history of student radio is that that's exactly what the students did. It's this really weird thing that independently of each other across the country, across the last uh, nine decades, there is just something about young people that we need to express ourselves. Uh, the fact that we have the community license is fantastic. Um in many ways in that we have an outlet for that. So we didn't need those pirate radio stations, um, as much as frequently as the United States did, but it's absolutely clear. Like, for example, um, pretty much every single station I study is may die. For example, lack of interest, you know, financial issues, etc. I will got, fall by the wayside, but every single time that happens in a matter of years, it will always come back. There is just something mm-hmm. about young people, uh, and I would say that's my area of interest, but I would, in fact, extrapolate that to our ethnic minorities in Australia. Um, anybody who has, who does not have access to the mainstream media, there's something that makes us want to broadcast.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to, if we can, to uh, kind of pick up and find, you know, in 1975 is kind of where I stopped you in the story there, Rafael, and uh, where we have the, Australia's first community radio station coming, coming online. At what point then d- do the first uh, licensed, fully authorized uh, student or college university radio stations start in Australia?
0: so um the actual history of the license itself is very controversial so what happened was in 1972 we had a very very progressive government in australia um it's called the whitlam government um gough whitlam was a legend um he's still very much beloved in australia uh today um he passed away a few years ago um but he's um revered by both sides of politics um Lough Whitlam and his administration were the government that introduced Medicare for all in our country. Um, So this very progressive government, um, they're also the, uh, pardon me, sorry. So this very progressive government was in office, um, but there were some dramas, which I won't go into now because there's a whole whole story behind that. Um, There were some dramas that basically meant, uh, because of the way our government system worked, um, the Governor General of Australia could dissolve our parliament. So that basically meant they could just, Fire everybody at the same time and call another election. This is a ridiculously uh, controversial, dramatic thing to do, but technically they can do it, and that Ant- is in fact anti-democratic.
3: What they ended up I think is how we would label that.
0: Um, I, I'm absolutely sure most Americans would agree because the reason that happens is because uh, we are a constitutional monarchy. Um, so technically, the Governor General speaks to the Queen, um, so who is not an Australian. <laughs> um, so that's that's a whole other thing. Um, but uh, uh, this. Uh, controversial thing was happening. Um, and it was uh, also quite clear that it was going to happen. Um, it had to happen at the end of the year. So the Whitlam government and its, uh, ministers knew they had to, if they wanted to do some stuff, they needed to do it now. So Moss Cass was the minister for media, uh, or rather the minister who's in charge of radio. Um, he really wanted to get going on this idea for these alternative, uh, licenses. Uh, so people, different people could start broadcasting that we could expand the airwaves um, and give access to different people. Right. Um, he did not have the means to do it fully. So he did a little bit of a sneaky thing. He actually amended the Wireless Telegraphy Act, uh, which is not really where it should have been done. It actually should have been done in the Broadcasting Act, um, but it worked. So what he did was he kind of sneakily arranged these weird licenses for 12 universities and or tertiary institutions um, or student unions. Um, I love this. They're called this. the, Mo- <laughs> the Moss. so much. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. I, it's not student radio if it's not dramatic. Um, I know. So they're called, they're called the Moss Dirty Dozen, uh, those initial licenses that were granted because it was so sort of – it was very like sneaky. I uh, will accept that it was sneaky. Um, I think it was awesome personally. Um, but that is precisely why the community radio license was able to be fully implemented in 1974 75. And, wh- um, and so why did he, did he want? Why did he want to do that? Like, why
1: was he um, so much on the side of student radio?
0: He was genuinely just. He genuinely. Uh, uh, I should say. I just want to quickly clarify it. Um, the actual licenses were not awarded to students, except for one very special one, which was awarded to Four Triple in uh, Brisbane. Um, that was awarded to a student union. Every other license was awarded to a university. So Got that it. was for the purpose of that was for the purpose of broadcasting lectures um, and similar educational material. Um, m- 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 like not just lectures, but you know some other things. But it was mainly the university that had control. Um, however, I do believe that Mosca's genuinely believed in opening up the airwaves and giving people access to the airwaves so to answer your question of why he did it, I genuinely think he really wanted to open up the airwaves. And I also think he was a very clever man, um, who knew that, you know, this was only step one. Um, so, uh, four Z is a really unique um, example, um, of student radio, um, which we'll get into later, I'm sure. But, um, Moss Cass actually directly communicated with them and they, uh, uh, he knew that he was on his way out. Um, in the middle of the year. Um, so he, and he actually wrote a letter to four triple Z and he said, um, look, I see what you mean. You need your license ASAP. Um, this is a very time-sensitive issue. I'll sort it out. So uh, MOSCAS um, sneakily got through um, the changes to the Wireless Teleg- Telegraphy Act, which enabled 12 tertiary institutions or student unions to go on air. Um, most of them were universities um, and at ad- the administration of the universities rather than the students themselves, with one exception being 4 Z in Brisbane. Um, But they got their licenses um, and just that in itself was an extraordinary change um, in broadcasting. Um, So the very first, there's some debate about this, about if it's a community radio station, quote unquote, um, but I would accept that the first community radio station in Australia was at the University of Adelaide. It was 5UV broadcasting on AM, mainly broadcasting educational content, um, both lectures and also just general educational programs by staff members. Um, but they also um, soon kicked off Access Radio, which is was, was this kind of model where uh, the university ran the station, but people, uh, different community groups paid for access for certain time slots. Uh, so uh, a poetry group uh, who loved poetry paid for an hour or two. Um, they got together every week and they broadcast poetry. Uh, there are um, music specialty groups. Um, eventually, the students became a group um, a few years later. Um, and there were ethnic minority groups who paid for airtime. Um, and that was the constitution of 5UV, the University of Adelaide radio.
2: Um,
0: what, so so that was. Really- the- that's so
1: interesting. What was the access? How expensive was it to get on the air? I'm just curious if it was extremely accessible because it was just a small amount of money or you know what was what was the cost of getting on the air at an access station like that?
0: Sure it's um it's um it's debatable um it wasn't outrageously expensive um I believe that the sum was perhaps a few hundred dollars at the time um which would be obviously a lot more now um I would have to clarify that exactly um it wasn't very cheap because um, that was the way that the, the at the time the stations ran. Obviously, they couldn't run ads because that was a condition of their license. Um, so they needed to fund – the station in some way um so it was partially funded by the university and then partially funded by fees paid by these community groups um generally yeah. the community there's groups- a
2: similar there's a similar thing in, in in new zealand presently uh if we recall about a year ago i spoke with the folks at uh, access radio in wellington um where also the community groups that are on the air um they do pay for some of that airtime, and of course the, the station is also funded by um by uh, government grant as well but uh it is it is the case that the broadcasters and the communities represented therein do actually pay for it so it seems like there's a similar model there in 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 sort of the um australasia kind of region
0: yeah yeah absolutely it was a it was a it's a, it's a really interesting sort of idea and, and not all community stations do that of course um but it's um it's an interesting and often, again, controversial idea. Sometimes, as some people say, you know, it's a community station. Why should people have to pay for access, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, but that was the case for the University of Adelaide, um, and very much a pioneer in this field. Um, and basically, because uh, I'm, I'm this is my ed- uh, editorial opinion at this point, um, so this is an absolute fact. But uh, I would say that because moscast made sure that he got through these. Initial changes to the Wireless Telegraphy Act um, and enabled these particular stations to go ahead in 1972. Uh, the incoming administration, which was the Liberal administration, which I know is confusing for Americans, but that is the right wing government um, in Australia at the time. So they're, they're generally a little bit more conservative. Um, they we're in a much more difficult position to not continue with those changes. Um, so partially because the previous push um, from all those groups I mentioned earlier was still there. Um, those groups still wanted that radio. But now these all these universities had these licenses and they didn't want to give them up. They were really good for publicity, they were just like uh, it was just like really, it was just like a extra little gem that they could advertise um, about themselves. Um, they could use it to broadcast educational materials. Uh, some universities actually um, uh, had remote courses. Obviously, they didn't have the internet back then. So um, one of one of the things they did is they sold class material and they broadcast lectures on their radio stations. So basically, there was all these like really great things uh, for the universities in these stations, and so it just created this whole other really. Um, imposing lobby group um, that was advocating for the continuing of these licenses. And I'll also add that um, uh, possibly uh, people in power, such as politicians, tend to be in communication with each other. So people in power, like politicians, generally – are friends with people like vice chancellors of universities. Um, so that, that might be like an additional feature. That's again, an editorial opinion. Um, but, but long story short, um, this really cool dude called Tony Staley, who is the uh, right wing, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, minister in this right wing government that was responsible for radio. Um, he did something really amazing, which was, he actually went through and he properly licensed these stations. Um, he's actually a bit of a celebrity in the community radio field. Uh, the community broadcasting association of Australia has uh, yearly awards. And one of the most prestigious ones is called the Tony Staley award for excellence. Um, and he's honored for that. Re- he's, we honor him for that reason because, um, of his great part in actually fully establishing, uh, these licenses, um, and that was fully, properly established as uh, full, full-time broadcasting licenses in 1978, um, and th- then they couldn't stop us.
1: It's, it, Rafael Aldemarri, it's been so fascinating to hear this history, and I know you have, you've been deep in the archives, and, and I'm not sure we can go through, like, the entire history, so we're going to have to probably direct people to your website, studentradiohistory.com.au, and also to your future book, but maybe if you could wrap up, like what is the legacy of, of this student radio history in Australia today? How many stations are there? uh, And, and what sort of role do they play in the media?
0: So virtually every tertiary institution either has a station itself or some kind of relationship with a nearby community station. Um, Students have broadcast in so many different formats over the years. Um, they, if they don't have their own like little low power broadcasting station on campus uh, or the broadcasting on PAS on campus, uh, they'll have like you know a one hour slot in a community radio show. Uh, they'll they'll have groups that create podcasts um, instead of uh, broadcasting live. Um, there's so
1: many there's so many parallels as you're describing all of these ways that students broadcast. I, I you know I have to tell you that. I've heard about stations, the college radio stations in the United States that were broadcast over public address systems as well, and some even broadcast using phone numbers where you could call up a phone and listen. It's I've been amazed by. Oh, that's so cool! Just the ingenuity of students. So it's it's great to hear that in Australia that's the case too.
0: A very recent thing during lockdown, um, we were all plunged into lockdown very unexpectedly. Obviously campuses were closed as well, um, mostly. So Radio Monash, which is a station at, at in Melbourne, they found themselves unable to do their music festival that they had planned. So they had like, you know, a gig planned. Um, a lot of, uh, a whole bunch of different musicians from the Monash University were going to play. Uh, people could support them, follow them on Instagram, that kind of thing. Um, that didn't go ahead. Um, that, was can- that was very early in lockdown. Uh, and very cleverly i was so impressed at the time radio monash decided to move their whole thing online not only did they broadcast it on the station they broadcast it on instagram live which is such a cool interesting take on radio i personally believe in all form- forms of audio as radio art uh, as uh having the potential to be radio. Um, I don't believe in this sort of old-fashioned thing where it has to be broadcast, it has to be FM, it has to be this, it has to be that. Um, and I just thought it was freaking brilliant. And what they did was they, they directed their listeners to the Instagram pages of the artists and they did a page hop. So one artist would do a set of 10 minutes or so. They'd say, thanks very much. Now head to at whoever it was. They'd hop to the next one oh, and fun. it was freaking brilliant and I was just so well organized and all the planning and the coordination of the artists um, I just thought it was so fantastic at the way they did it and they're just like constant innovation and resilience of student radio is just unparalleled in the radio world and that's the Bennett that's the value of having young people be part of your station these ideas don't come God bless them, from old people. They come from young people. They have the ability to experiment and come up with these amazing ideas.
1: I, I totally agree. And, they're you know, on the forefront of technology, we see this in the very early days of radio and the very early days of Internet radio, too. So that's incredibly clever to, to do that hopping between social media channels as part of your broadcast and um, definitely a lot of innovation during the lockdown, for sure.
0: But if I can summarize the history of student radio for you, um, pretty briefly, it's a history of students being put down. Um, Like I mentioned, there's this constant need, uh, this constant push for students to be on air and to broadcast. And they're constantly been smacked down by all these different forces. And one of the things that I will explore in my book, uh, which I haven't completely settled on myself, is whether or not the granting of licenses to universities rather than the students themselves was a very wise thing to do because as a consequence of the fact that the universities held power over the last few decades of student radio students have not had as much access to the airwaves as they could have done they've frequently been censored um, and they frequently had much much less access to time and resources on the air than they could have or should have in my opinion
1: yeah, and I mean, we could talk for a long time about how that's played out in the United States as well, with, you know, different stations have had different licensing structures. In some cases, stations are licensed to a student group versus the university. That first station at Haverford was actually licensed to a student amateur radio club. So it was students who decided to sell the license, which is, completely different from the modern story where you often hear about administrators selling a student radio license so Mm -hmm. definitely a a fertile topic for future discussion Rafael ella i'm i'm so glad that you joined us on the show to just share the tip of the iceberg of student radio history in australia
0: Uh, my absolute pleasure thanks so much um
2: so R- Rafael, uh, in in Australia, I mean, is there a fair amount of campus life on universities? You know, is, is it common for there to be lots of clubs? Uh, you know, and students spend a lot of time on campus.
0: So that's a really interesting question. It was the case, uh, and I uh, obviously pre corona times, it was uh, yeah somewhat that's, I'm the case. Talking
2: about pretty much the times previous to Coronavirus. Sorry, sorry.
0: I should say um, let's let's put it like this. Um, during the last few decades of the 20th century, yes. Uh, pre- before corona, it was somewhat the case that there was campus life, but there was this very controversial thing which significantly affected the existence of student radio stations and student groups in general, um, which is called voluntary student unionism. So previously in Australia, uh, if you're at a university, uh, if you're a student at a particular university, it's you're required to be part of the union of that university, so you pay a fee. Um, and you mm-hmm. receive the services that the student union provides to all students in return. Um, I call it very similar to paying a tax. You pay a tax, you get services in return. Um, I think reasonably good system, especially if you get good stuff in return. Um, and that- We learned about a similar system in Canada.
2: Well, no, I mean, it's a similar system that we have in the U.S. In the Ste- U.S., it's not uh, statutory. In that there are no laws putting this in place, so in the, in the United States, um, university to university, college to college, uh, they implement student fees. In generally speaking, um, the, the, it's up to the individual institutions. And you're correct, Eric, uh, in Ontario, um, Canada, uh, at the uh, at the provincial level, uh, they in fact uh, passed a, a bill, a law, allowing students to have a line item, basically, to be able to say that um, I want to support. This club and this fee and I want to support this other and, and not do that, which, which caused the, uh, the college community radio station organization in Canada to, to obviously uh, lobby against uh, that, seeing that it, it would cause students to, to possibly no longer want to support their, their campus radio stations. So it sounds like something similar uh, happened in Australia, Rafal, is that correct?
0: precisely so the the, the the thing called voluntary student unionism was pushed through by the right-wing parties um, and frankly this is again a very personal opinion um, but it was frankly quite political um, and nakedly political I would say um, they didn't like student groups because they were very very left-wing um, and they wanted to put them down so that's that may be a controversial opinion um, but that's um, certainly was the perspective at the time. Um, And it was certainly the consequence of what they did. Uh, So the target was student unions in general. Obviously, they didn't have anything specific against student radio stations or anything like that. But as a consequence of student unions, which were largely responsible for running the student radio stations, um, as a consequence of those student unions being significantly financially affected, um, a lot of the stations ended up either having to shut down, uh, actually move out of the union. Um, Some of them had to uh, just um, um, degenerate, I would say, um, from these really successful, you know, professional stations that were broadcasting, had people hanging out, you know, just doing normal student radio things to these just rooms that they had available that happened to have some microphones in them. Uh, people would, you know, have sex in there and, uh, you know, like party and stuff. And it was just, you know, just absolutely left by the wayside because there was no support structure for those stations. Um, and a lot of people as a consequence, uh, as an opinion, as a consequence of not being forced to be part of the union. Obviously, a lot of people chose not to be. And consequently, a lot of students just ended up not being not participating in student life because of that. Um, there was an interesting interview I did with one of the um, student radio veterans of the 1960s who said the only reason he joined his student station was because he was forced to be part of the union. He's like, you know, since I'm paying this fee, I may as well get something out of it. Um, so that's a whole what, so what issue.
2: did this happen in australia when was the uh when was the this sort of change to the student union fee structure when was that enacted
0: so that was two, there were two phases of that um the most recent one was um i believe it was 2005 um or around 2005 oh uh, yeah i believe it was 2005 sorry you can quote me on that um and the effect was immediate and absolutely obvious, Um, I remember, I think this is a good metaphor, I actually used to work at Radio Monash, which is why I'm referencing them, Um, but I was looking, while I was vice president of that station, looking through our archives, and there's these, like, fantastic, uh, beautifully organized files with tab markers and stuff like that, Um, really good documentation, board meetings, all the way up until 2008, which is when the university stopped funding Radio Monash, and I felt like an archaeologist looking at an ancient civilization and you knew that something terrible happened in 2008 because there were no relics, there were no pots, could have find a damn thing um from then on there was a black out period from 2008 to about 2012 um, so I, was, I remember thinking that it's like, um, the, like a volcano has erupted and buried this particular era or like there was a famine or something like that and they couldn't take any records at the time. Uh, but what, had it, what happened was um, they lost the, the significant support of the university. Um, they did not have the support of the union um, any longer and it degenerated. Um, uh, there was a lot of efforts by these amazing people to bring it back um, and now it's thriving um, but, but yeah, um, it voluntary student unionism hit student radio really hard, and we lost a lot of fantastic stations as a consequence. But like I said, student radio is nothing if not resilient, and I'm 100% sure we will be back.
1: How how did stations survive after you – because know, in the United States, there are a variety of funding structures. Some stations don't get any funding at all from their university, and so – you know, some are able to fundraise, some are not able to fundraise. So how, in Australia, how did stations survive those that did not degenerate? How do they survive without that funding?
0: Um, so some stations went into a hibernation period where they just sort of, uh, degenerate is like a bit of a dramatic word, but they just kind of like fell by the wayside, let's say that. Um, they weren't very active. They had very few members. They, they, they Because there were so few members, it was very, pretty much just like a social club for like a few people. Um, but because of the continued membership of those few people, it kind of stayed existing so that a few years later when the new generation of, you know, university students came in, they were able to revive it. Um, so, uh, overwhelmingly, um, overwhelmingly the the reason that stations survive is because those new generations come in and they're like, Hey, look at this place. It has so much potential. And because of the resources that exist, um, for in particular, the actual physical studio, um, which generally the stations have for at least um, they usually sign leases with the union uh, for like, you know, 100 years kind of thing. Um, and the existing equipment, which is usually quite expensive, they're able to just rock in, clean up the studio and get going straight away. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Radio Monash. Um, that's what's happened with uh, the University of Sydney student radio. Um, there was uh, various efforts all, all across the country. Um, and they came back strong with internet radio.
1: I cannot believe I haven't asked you this already, but I need to know your college radio history, Rafael. Oh,
0: wonderful! Oh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I was at uh, as a student at Monash University. I just accidentally sort of walked past. Uh, I don't know what you have. What's the equivalent of O Week, Orientation Week, at in America, uh, where yeah, you true. have like you sign up to, to clubs and stuff.
1: Yeah, very similar. We we had something called Customs Week at my school, but that was a very specific name for it. But I've heard Orientation Week as well.
0: Cool. So it's, yeah, it's O-Week is the week just before week one, before classes start. Um, so that's the week where um, we have like a little bit of a – A like a little festival outside on the lawns. Um, So we set up these, you know, little stalls or just tables, whatever. Um, That's pretty universal, I'd say, like across the main universities in Australia. Um, And you walk around and you pick clubs. Um, And uh, it's particularly popular, obviously, with the first-year students and second-year students, so people wanting to make friends, meet people, like try out new things. Um, And I am nothing if not (laughs) conscientious and, like, I was very active and I wanted to learn things, so I walked around and I walked past these – Weirdos at a radio, a uh, student radio stall. I was like, "What is this? Uh, I'd never heard of student radio in my whole life." Um, oh, why did like, you think they is- were
1: weirdos? I'm curious. Like, what struck you as weird about them?
0: <laughs> when you <walked laughs> I, I should by- say, I, I found out later that they were weird. <laughs> oh, okay, got it. I, that's a that's an embellishment. I should say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I walked by these groovy dudes um, at a student radio stall, and I just thought the idea of student radio was so cool. The idea that you could just like just produce straight away um that's all I've always wanted to do I've always wanted to be a writer um and I just love the idea that I don't have to you know do my pay my dues and do this and that I can just go off and do it and because I strongly believe I'm sure you do as well that the best way of learning how to do something is by doing it um so yeah I got involved I was real shy um had some other stuff had you heard of
1: had you heard of student radio before you walked by
0: that that stall not, not a one, not once, um, and um, that's a really interesting thing because I've noticed that a lot of people who end up having student radio be really important to them only got involved accidentally because it happened to be nearby them. One of the one of the students I interv- one of the individuals I interviewed, uh, he had not- has nothing to do with radio now. He had no interest in a radio career. He was actually studying math, and the only reason he got involved with his student radio station was because it was in the math building. Um, And he ended up being very important to him, but he otherwise would never have gotten involved. Um, So I'm really passionate about putting student radio in front of people and giving them a real option to be involved because a lot of people just have no idea that it exists in the first place.
3: That's so fun. What was your first – what kind of show did you make?
0: So I started as a news editor where I did um, – once a week I did a short um, news reading in the morning. Um, I also had a really terrible show called Out of Time – um after the Ramones song um and it was just um an eclectic mix of music I do like specials the only like really well-produced show I did was called uh, about Lit Hop which is a genre of music which is where in the same way that movies adapt uh, classic works of literature into movies um some uh, rappers have been adapting classic works of literature especially poetry into songs um so I did a special on that that was pretty much <laughs> the, that the best like, a, like that sounds great that sounds fantastic I've never listened to the audio. I was so embarrassed. I have the audio, but I've never listened to it. I should Ah. listen to it one day. Maybe I'll edit it. Who knows? Maybe it wasn't as terrible as I remember. Don't (laughs) Um,
3: don't edit it. Leave it it as bad as it is because it's good.
0: And when. um, So, what year was it that you started in college radio? In student radio? So that was 2013. Um, At the end of the year, I I decided to go up for news editor. Um, So I was news editor in 2014, um, and that's when I got really heavily involved, and there was just a lot of stuff going on. I was very socially involved at the station. And then in 2015, I was the vice president and treasurer of that station, so I had a little bit more to do with the running of the station and the sort of direction that the station took. Um, the thing about student radio is um, we've been talking about the, the nitty-gritty details because um, they're interesting uh, to us. But um, what's interesting probably to everybody is the drama and the intrigue that goes with student radio, mm-hmm. um, the social cliques. Um, and I would say that they, these all this stuff happens with any time you get a group of humans in the same place. Um, but I always find it the drama very intriguing. Um, my time in student radio was no different. Uh, some drama got, went on and I left prematurely. Um, I remember it you know, fondly now, um, it was all very petty, you know, uh, immature stuff. Um, but, um, that was the, the end of my uh, time at Radio Monash. Um, and I ended up, uh, I volunteered at the same time with some community radio stations. Um, I kind of was out of the fold for a while. Um, in 2017, I was the, I got involved with sin, which is a licensed student, sorry, a licensed youth radio station in Melbourne, which is quite influential. I'd say it's the biggest youth radio station in the country. Um, that started at RMIT University uh, as uh, student radio at RMIT, um, and they merged with a high school student radio group um, to form SYN, um, um, which is, as I said, yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So
1: you mentioned high school radio, and that's something that I meant to ask you about. About what 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 role does high school radio play in Australia? Is that a big? Is there a big scene?
0: Not so much. I've seen like I remember watching an episode of That's So Raven and they had like a radio show um, at their high school and they had a whole studio set up and everything. I thought that was so cool when I was a kid Um, and I think it's I still still think it's really cool now. But it's definitely a foreign idea to me. That's not really something that happens. Um, That being said, there are.
3: I'm just gonna guess that more kids have seen that episode of That's So Raven. Than have participated in their own high school radio stations in America. Yes,
0: definitely. Oh, in America. Okay, no, fair enough. Um, yeah. It's but not the, very the option... common. That was
3: my point. It's not. It's very oh. uncommon in the United States.
1: Well, and on so many, you know, Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two and O, there was a high school radio station. That's right. Like, that's a lot of right. A lot of big television shows. But, but have I had literally, high school
3: radio. I literally didn't know it was a possibility until I was a host of Radio Survivor in the last five years. Even though. High school radio has been a part of the United States, uh, going all the way back. I learned about it because Jennifer and Paul taught me that a radio station right here in Portland, Oregon, was founded by high school students and uh, was still on the air. So it's the longest running high school radio station. Yeah,
1: 1923, I think. To I don't bottom. know that students founded it, but I students you told me were... they
3: they went they walked past the downtown shop and saw the transmitter in the. In, that's what the story was. They they saw the transmitter in the shop and said, "I want to do that." And so the so the teenagers bought the radio station and built it. That was the founding myth. I don't know if it's a verified. <laughs> it's, it's I don't the know. Tale. I, mean, I know my, everything that's told to me. I don't know if they're
0: true.
1: My my prominent memory about that station is that when we visited, we heard stories about um, they had all these historic transcription discs, which you know basically recorded the programming from the 1940s so an amazing archival find and apparently they had so many that at one point people were just like throwing them off the roof like flying discs so that's oh my, my big gosh, memory yeah. it was like college radio history just flying through that the is air horrifying <laughs> i know
0: <laughs> that's like my worst nightmare um those archival materials in australia are very hard to come by um, i'm building up a little bit of a collection but they're very yeah they're very uh, few and far between yeah how are you so how are you going about your research um so I, I should just answer your, your um, high school radio question which is oh yeah, have to, uh, there absolutely are um, there have been quite a lot of high school students participating in radio over the last few decades, and there are a few high school radio stations in Australia now um, the The history is a little bit more difficult to find, like I said, a lot of this information um, either comes from or starts with student newspapers which have been archived because they're associated with universities. Um, so there's very few, you know, independent organi- uh, independent publications that are archived um, successfully. Um, you know, there were lots of zines at the time that have been lost um, over the years, um, but student re- student newspapers are sort of unique in that. Unfortunately, there has not been a similar archival effort for high school papers, partially yeah. because not all not, – while well, uh, pretty much every campus has some kind of student publication – um, not all high schools had them; that they, they were actually like reasonably rare. Um, generally, if you had a student radio station, they would have all paper as well. But it was—it's just much, much more difficult to track that stuff down. So I'm sure there's quite a number of high school stations I have not found out about. There are some really notable um, examples um, and some a lot of really interesting efforts. Personally, I think high school radio is the most interesting student radio because it's so innovative. It's so like. Uh, It's the definition of taking the initiative, you know. They didn't sit around waiting for somebody to say, oh, there's a station. Do you want to be part of it? They did it themselves. They just up and did it. They're like, screw it. I'm going to do it. Um, I just love that idea. Um, right now there is a licensed station in, uh, Tasmania, uh, which is the little bit at the bottom of the Australian map that you see. Um, that's in a really small place called La- Launceston. Um, that's called LCFM. You can tune in online. I highly recommend them. They're not always live. So you can look up their live shows, um, which are fantastic. Um, and they have a great mix of music that makes me feel really old. um, uh, but but yeah, the high school radio definitely happens at the moment. Um, high school, I, I would say actually, throughout the history and now, uh, high school students have frequently been broadcasting. But they generally will broadcast on community radio. They usually most community stations have had. Uh, at least once or uh, recurrently throughout their history a high school radio show. So specifically for high school students um, they may bring, you know, a school may actually organize to come in. I know that SIN, for example, in Melbourne um, uh, schools actually pay to send their students to SYN um, they receive uh, uh, some training from SIN and they actually go on air at SIN as part of that slot. Um, so there's absolutely a lot of interest um, and I think some of the most interesting stories come from maverick high school students who just love radio so much they will travel for like three hours on a train just to get to a community radio station broadcast their show for an hour and go home
1: that yeah that's powerful i i mean along those lines i know you're really passionate about about youth media generally why why do you think it's so important
0: i mean i i won't pretend not to have a political motivation in this um or i should say sorry can i rephrase that Uh, i won't pretend not to have a political founding um, in writing this book. Um, I, As I expressed earlier, not all of the content or the individuals on student radio or youth radio are political um, necessarily, but I believe that the act, as I say, of marginalized groups broadcasting their voices is inherently political, and there is a clear and very strong correlation between progressive social ideals and young people. This is the 70s and the 60s all over again, where young people – Uh, said don't trust anybody over 30, Um, uh, rejected the very old-fashioned ideas that were being foisted upon them, that were being forced down their throats. They were trying to say, no, but listen, women should be able to do whatever they want. Um, uh, Black people should be an equal part of our society. let's re-examine the parameters around gender, um, all this stuff happening. The older generations of the time like, strongly rejected it and the younger generation said, no, we're going to do it anyway. They were the rock and roll generation. Um, they didn't like to be told what to do and neither do we. Um, so I'm here like uh, very spooky, especially given the recent events of the last few days, very spooky um, resemblances in my mind, especially having studied the 70s, um, for this book, um, between now and the 60s and 70s, the period right after McCarthyism and this extremely conservative period of time um, where the young people were getting more and more fed up. And I I think many scholars would agree that the 60s wouldn't have happened if the administrations of the time were not so aggressively conservative. Um, And I think, frankly, uh, the the events of the last few days have been horrifying um, with the... With what we were seeing at the capitol, but I also think that's probably the right wing's biggest mistake is to show their hands and to keep pushing um because there's a point where we push back
3: right you're um you're referring and we're we're speaking today on january eighth twenty twenty one you're referencing the events of of Wednesday, which is essentially how many hours ago at this stage? Uh, you know the historic events of the Trump rally. Attendees. Wednesday, January 6th. Yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm I'm talking. It's a matter of hours. It's a matter of forty-ish, uh, fifty-ish hours since we've experienced. Uh, what's your take? The, uh, oh, my take, please. Um,
0: G- give it to me, the Americans. Um, oh, what gosh. do you think? I mean, I'm sure you must be reeling. Um, what's the situation?
3: Well, I'm thinking a lot room. about, so uh, I want to talk about, and I, I'll, I'll say it on the podcast because the other, my take politically is, you know, I'll go on and on, but I don't think it's interesting for the podcast. I'll t- I'll, I'll call you tomorrow and tell you my take,
1: um, oh, yeah, sure. but, but I want to I mean,
3: talk about on the podcast, uh, their media and the way that they uh, create media, the, the Trump right wing. Um, I, I see it, it's, it makes me very sad because I'm. Uh, a person who was young in the 90s and then at that time the only people that were creating alternative media were lefties were the anti-war left and or 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 you know the the, the anti-capitalist left or the pro the
1: do we pro, know that eric
3: no of course that's how i yeah, felt i don't think
2: we could. right but that's how you
3: felt, that's right. how I felt i mean yeah we were talking earlier today about right uh during this during the radio for, during the first hour of this interview we were talking about how um non-commercial radio stations in the united states uh i was tempted to to speak up i, I kept my mouth closed but we were talking There, they tend to be um they tend to be broadcast entities that amplify left-wing politics in the United States, or at least that's how. Well,
2: actually, and, well they don't, though. Actually, I mean, if you did a count, yeah, if you did a raw count of the non-commercial radio stations in the United States, the vast majority of them, correct, are are owned by religious entities.
0: And but those are so those. That's the case in Australia as well. I want to. Yeah.
2: I want to cut those
3: out of my diagram. I'm glad that they're included in the factual, the you know, the factual intake yeah. of whatever we're trying to. The sentence I'm trying to complete. The. Those, but those don't have community voices for the most part. They seem very canned. They seem very uh, empty as far as broadcast. This, there they like, like one note to the. Right. Religious I mean, if you want to draw
2: a distinction, I mean, the distinction you're trying to draw, I think, Eric, right, is that is that we have from a content standpoint and an ownership standpoint, we have subdivisions of of non-commercial radio in the United States. As far as our communications authority is concerned, they're all the same stations. Yeah, They don't care. There's no distinction between them. Uh, non-commercial station is a non-commercial station is a non-commercial station. From it's, it's, the standpoint of a listener or someone who produces, there's many differences. But but ultimately, if there's a non-commercial radio license available in a given city, a church may own it. Uh, a, community, uh, a college may own it. A community nonprofit may own it. They're but they're all equal parties. Correct. Uh, yeah,
1: in, and the in, U.S. So, is,
0: but, so, so is what is what you're trying to get at, Paul? That uh, there seems to be a very sharp uptick in the number of conservative radio, uh, non-commercial radio stations of late.
2: Not even of late, uh, but uh, certainly there was a tremendous amount of growth uh, in, in in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, but this, uh, you know, and and and, and but those and, are, aren't those commercial. No, we're talking, no. talking about commercial AM talk radio, the Rush Limbaugh nope. stations. Well, no, I
1: mean, well, there's that you know, too. I, we have parallel we have things. That. So AM radio,
2: right? There's many, many, many of the of the non-commercial religious stations are also co- politically conservative. So they do not air Rush Limbaugh, right? But they air programming which is nevertheless. They, conservative they christian might mention and they might mention the president or
3: the former president depending on when you're listening to this program they might mes- they might actually even reference
2: president trump in a positive light on these christian I mean, they, well they may in fact be airing things like focus on the family right um, right. I mean, it's not about it, the Supreme I Court, I guess, I guess. But, um, I, gosh, yeah. I, but,
0: but you know, uh, sorry, if I can just say that's Do um, it. I would say, Paul, like a very insightful point that you're you're trying to drive at, which is um, has been written about um, in The New York Times and it's been discussed extensively and why that th- this book is not just a niche interest, um, but it has significant uh, relevance to the media industry in general. And I would say the world in general This point has been discussed extensively by uh, professional journalists, which is the media ecosystem that American conservatives live in. Um, I'm sure you obviously know a lot more about this than I do, so I'll let you talk about it. Um, But that's one of the, this uh, article came up while I was writing my book and I was like, yes, exactly. Um, Which is that um, one of the reasons that, uh, arguably, um, one of the contributing factors to the increasing conservatism and extremism of the Republican Party is the influence of talk back radio and it's the really interesting um fusing of the type of media which is uh not just you don't just sit there watch a 10 minute video and finish talk back radio is sort of constant it's feeds into you constantly it's this like constant stream of consciousness um that people are tuning into for quite a long period of time and b- because it's such a long uh you know slab of information it's quite difficult to analyze that um as a journalist somebody trying to push back um, you can't. It's really difficult to push back against something that's on twenty four seven. And if you're a person that lives in this ecosystem, who listens to this radio constantly, who watches um, conservative news outlets and reads conservative news, um, I understand, like as just an observer, like why, like why it would happen that that person would be convinced of this, what people have been calling this alternate reality, yeah. the, the
3: and bubble. Now, and well, and now there's an. There's an even further iteration of the alternate reality, which is really devastating just for us to absorb as people who care about the United States. That there's now this, you know, beyond the Rush Limbaugh media ecosphere of right-wing talk radio, we now have a a new bubble of reality. You know, many of the people who were inside of the Capitol um, who are on camera are wearing QAnon paraphernalia or are displaying mm-hmm. QAnon, um, you know. And, and at this stage, QAnon does not have a radio station in the United States, but it does have a lot of uh, – it has a huge online media yeah. presence. They're live streaming. It doesn't need
0: a radio
1: station, yeah.
3: Right, and they're live streaming yeah. very successfully. And they're, they're things give...
1: that stand in for radio, right? Like, yeah, these live streams or these, you know, private social media groups.
3: Yeah, so – I, yeah, that's – who, boy. It's It's been very I mean, stressful to this week. I, I'll
0: just – I'd just like to say, like, uh, I'm so sorry because um, I know that Americans – every American I've ever met is just so patriotic and I can't imagine what it's like to, to see this happening in your country. Um, but this is why this is so important and why what you're doing is so important and why, why I, what I'm doing is so important. Uh, the media is the – big player in all of this this is really where it's all being battled out in particular when we're talking about student radio history there are a number of reasons why student radio is politically relevant um, I don't try to push politics down people's throat um, when I do um, deal with student radio because I know that a lot of student radio individuals are not personally you know outwardly political or radical and I respect that and I don't want to um Put them in a position where they need to, you know, advocate for, for, for various things. Uh, when they all they want to do is make jokes on the radio. But pretty much every single person who is in Australia's professional media sphere, including our most popular TV hosts, radio hosts, etc., came through student media. Hmm. If we can diversify student media, we will diversify Australian media. If we can impress upon the individuals going through student radio and student media, the values of independence and the values of community, the value of integrity that will seep into the mainstream media sphere, because that's just how it happens. It's an absolute fact that student radio has a direct correlation to future radio careers. I'm actually building um, a notable alumni list as part of the book um, to, to demonstrate that. Um, it's just a very, very obvious thing. Um, and that is why it's so important um, to get the kids before they're corrupted by you know these other influences and let them think freely for themselves without these external influences of commercial uh, of commercial radio managers or um, you know particular editorial influences. Um, they can do whatever they want, and you'll find that young people, as I mentioned, generally tend to be socially progressive. And it just, it's just clear to me that if we can unify student radio and make ourselves a real force, um, we can significantly influence the Australian media landscape. Are you finding that, you know, I'm.
1: this is such an excellent point you're making, and, and even at the college radio station where I'm a volunteer, we have these discussions about how to make our station more welcoming and inclusive. Do you have a sense with student radio stations in Australia right now, do they do they feel like welcoming places to all people or do you think there's work that needs to be done to increase diversity?
0: There is a significant amount of work that needs to be done. Um, I'm a woman of colour. Um, it's very clear that you'd rock up at a station. It's very white straight away, um, And that is a uh, cultural reference. Um, so while, you know, you may have a station, although it is – representation itself is a problem. Um, but you may have a station with people of color, but the station itself is culturally not safe. As we'd say, modern lingo, um, that you would feel like it would be difficult to not act white. If that makes any sense, um, at one of these stations. Um, and you find that a lot of people, uh, this is, this is a, this is a significant, um, uh, issue that I discuss in my book. I think it's incredibly difficult, but very important, um, to uh, acknowledge the fact that quite a lot of young people of color are leaving or not joining student radio stations because of this perception of them being quite white yeah. and going to uh, community radio stations. So we have a few, uh, I mentioned 3CR earlier. So 3CR um, is particularly uh, political. Not all community stations are political. They um, usually just you know represent different members of the community. Um, 3CR is a broadly political, um, features a lot of, um, it has the most uh, Aboriginal broadcasters in Australia for a non-Aboriginal station. Um, It, you know, features a a homeless uh, program uh, for homeless people to broadcast on the air. Um, I don't believe, I don't think the prison program continues to run, but until recently, they used to broadcast from inside, prisons Mm -hmm. um representing marginalized members of the community and a lot of young people of color tend to go to those kinds of stations um their equivalents across australia um uh, there's a radio station called radio skid row in sydney um where you find that happens uh, a lot um or alternatively unfortunately um what actually i should say is more frequently happens is those young people of color don't get involved in radio at all um to the vast detriment to to our industry um so that's a Big problem. Um, it's uh, probably beyond my pay grade to solve the problem, but um, I will certainly discuss the reasons um, that, uh, pardon me, the reasons that the people I interview don't um, find themselves comfortable at student radio stations. The things that student radio admins can do. Um, I just had a very interesting conversation with the youth coordinator at Radio Skid Row when I visited Sydney recently, um, and she said, uh, "Pardon me," I should say they said they said it really has to do with the fundamental politics that you bring into it. If the people that are part of the board and the admin and the staff of a particular station are not committed really realistically, not just on the surface, but like deep down to having true diversity, both representationally and culturally, uh, it's not going to happen. So it's a really difficult problem to discuss and solve or, you know, suggest ideas. Um, It's so complicated. Um, But I will, I I will be doing my best to, to analyze, at least uh, provide some um, insight into what's going on.
1: Yeah, that's, that's incredibly important. We've, we've been talking to, uh, to people who are trying to address these issues, even in public radio, it's, you know, ongoing challenges. And I think you're right, if you, if you work on representation in student radio, that's only going to help things along further along the line when people graduate and enter into the radio industry, if if you have good examples happening among student stations, you know, that can only help would, other types.
0: Absolutely. And I'd say that we, there's this kind of perception, I, I would say it's the low self-esteem of student radio and youth radio. Like there's this kind of idea that we're just like a stepping stone to, to real radio. Um, and I really don't believe that. I love youth radio and I think that we should, Uh, put more effort into the or I should say put more um, energy and commitment into the content itself because I think it's in itself it's not just a training ground I think the content itself is
1: I totally agree I nothing bothers me more than when I hear things like college radio is a sandbox you know it sort of disparages the whole idea of it when I, I completely agree that student media in and of itself is amazing yeah,
3: I, I and, will put and, that and to, on. I will I will tune into that station because of <laughs> the station I want to listen to. <laughs>
0: send us Absolutely. a list. Absolutely. Um I list is coming away. Um, but in relation to this discussion, um, while you know people at uh, student radio may have this low self-esteem, um, it shouldn't. Um, we absolutely can be a driving force. We absolutely can be uh, change makers. Um, and I would say that student radio has the potential to possibly be the front line of people getting involved in the media. So this is a really important thing. If we're going to set up these stations um, where most of the students are journalism students, I think that there's something wrong with that station. You should not have a station that's exclusively people interested in the media or in a media career that treat it like a training ground. Obviously that is a feature of student radio always has been, but if that's the entire station, one, I think it will be pretty boring (laughs) um, because I think the people would be, you know, have be reasonably similar. um, And there would not be enough diversity in terms of the backgrounds of those people. I want to hear an engineer, talk to a mathematician, talk to a philosophy student, you know? Um, And two, uh, there's clearly a huge lack of diversity in terms of people who are applying to study media in the first place. So one of the really interesting things about student radio is that it has the potential to interest people in radio in the first place. So a lot of people have no interest in radio at all until they stumble upon this amazing community radio station or this really, really groovy student station that they walk past in the student union. And that's how they start their journalism career. We have this, like, it's a it's not a straightforward thing. It's not an easy thing. But it's just, like, it's such, a, it, the potential is so extraordinary that I really think it should be looked into. Um, how can we do that? How can we get young people of color to be inspired um, into uh, getting into the media industry? Um, it, I, 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 I'm sure things are a little bit different in America, but in Australia, the media industry is incredibly white. Um, so it makes it difficult um, on student level, if you have that low self-esteem, to be like, well, you know, we're only a drop in the ocean, the entire Australian media industry is quite undiverse, so why why should we have to be diverse?
3: I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that the media in the United States is also extremely white and has only started to improve in the last, uh, let's let's just say, 18 years or so. Not, you know, uh, so...
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. A lot of work. A lot of work to be done, for sure.
3: Well, that is the conclusion of today's extra special 90-minute version of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name was Eric Klein. Paul rees Mendel is a co-host. Jennifer Waits is a co-host and produced today's episode with our guest, Raphael Alumeri. What a wonderful time we had. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. I got confused there, podcast audience, because I was about to make a reference to um, evenings or mornings. <laughs> but, of course, Raphael uh, joined us from Australia. And to be quite honest, at this stage, um, later on in the week, editing at uh, in the evening time in the dark of winter, I've completely forgotten... Um, I believe it was morning in Australia when we were speaking, but maybe it was the middle of the night. It's not my, it's not my, I'm not, I'm not at my best and I'm not going to look it up right now. You can email us. Our email address is podcast at com. We love to hear from all of our listeners, questions, comments, suggestions, story pitches, guest ideas, Uh, book recommendations uh, movies you like radio survivor is here for you we're also on facebook and twitter if you want to reach out to us there we uh at this stage always encourage our listeners to subscribe to the show you can catch us anywhere where podcasts are caught as well as listening online uh, radiosurvivor.com show notes today are available this is episode number 280 links to uh, other interviews with Rafael alumeri at other websites thank you uh, to those websites thank you to Jose Fritz of Arcane Radio trivia um, who originally interviewed Rafael and center our way if that's a fair thing to say at least uh, alerted us to the you know, um, the uh, the fact that we would be happy to we didn't know until we did and then we knew. Um, What a fun interview we had, and we thank Jose for the tip. Thanks for listening. See you next week.